If you like, you can support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. It helps me to keep going uh, doing this thing that I'm doing. In this episode, I'm going to just take a moment or two to explain the two things that are at the center of this Enneagram of mimetic desire, namely mimetic psychology, and then obviously a bit on the Enneagram too. And then I want to talk a little bit about how I see these two things intersecting and also why I think it's a good idea to combine them. So first, let's look at mimetic theory. Mimetic theory originated in the mind of a uniquely gifted academic named René Girard, whose take on mythology I've already mentioned. Girard's theory began in literature criticism in his examination of the relationship between the self and the other in literature. In his book Deceit, Desire and the Novel, we find some highly illuminating thinking around literature, but also some illuminating thinking around life itself. In that study, Gerard notes that there is a striking difference between realistic storytelling and unrealistic storytelling. You might think that this has something to do with where the stories include realistic things like knives and toasters rather than fantastical things like infinity stones and horcruxes. But Gerard points out that the primary difference between realism and stupidism, sorry, I just made that word up, actually romanticism, hinges primarily on how the storyteller understands desire. Stories work or don't depending on how human psychology is articulated. Some authors will tell stories in keeping with the assumption that desire arises spontaneously out of a unique and autonomous subject, desire in the view of these authors is something that emerges within a bounded individual. Girard notices, however, that stories with this conception of desire in mind feel, well, just wrong. They end up lacking believability, partly because there is no such thing as a bounded individual, but mostly because desire isn't, on the whole, spontaneous. Gerard refers to this lack of believability as the romantic lie. It is an outright lie, he contends, to believe that desire, and by extension human psychology, is entirely an individual matter. It is misguided to think that we want things merely because we, as separate subjects, want things. When two friends fall in love with the same person, for instance, we simply cannot be dealing with two entirely unrelated, disconnected desires. The two friends seem to share the same desire because it really is the same desire. And this example of how desire works turns out to be not just one option out of several ways of desiring, but the rule concerning all desire. So, against the romantic lie of autonomous desire, Gerard describes novelistic truth. Good storytellers, storytellers whose stories resonate powerfully with the human experience, conceive of desire as something interdividual. This is to say that desire is something existing within and created by a relation between the self and the other. Desire always operates firstly within a world, in other words within an existing matrix of interconnected meanings. 
and only secondarily within any specific human subject. Adding to this idea, Gerard argues that this interdividual desire, this emergent directive of all human agency, is in fact copied or borrowed. Desire is, to use the more technical term, mimetic. All desire is mimetic. There is, in fact, no such thing as an individual spontaneous desire at all. Now, of course, this may seem like an unnecessary overstatement, at least until you examine the reasoning behind it, which begins with the idea that all understanding is mediated. This is most obvious with regard to the use of language, because language is that which mediates our existence or experience and our understanding of existence. Every word I use has been used by someone else, and even if I were to create a word like, say, stupidism, the word is still borrowed from concepts and linguistic norms already in existence. What is less obvious is that there are things that language doesn't account for, including desire itself. Desire is something that is somehow smuggled in via language. This is something we learn from the great philosophical work, a zombie movie named Pontypool. Desire is in fact mediated through relationships. Even if you conceive of something like an ideal self that you wish to imitate and therefore imitate something that seems at first to be existent entirely within your so-called individual self, the very ideal that you have imagined is going to be profoundly connected to ideals that others have first conceived of. Even your imagination's deepest yearnings have been formed in relation to the desires of others. And this is not even to speak, at least not yet, of the absolute being that grounds the very possibility of desire. The biblical view is that desire has its foundational origin in God himself, and what human beings get to do is either imitate the original desire, which is good, or distort it by imitating only each other, without any kind of reference to that which is transcendently good. The idea of mimetic desire can be taken a step further to suggest that the self is something that is in fact constituted or created by the desire of the other. Now I'm going to risk being a little overly technical here, but it may help. So let's make a distinction between the subject and the self. You are a subject. You have subjectivity. So I'm referring here to the whole of you, the total package that is you. And to be a subject means that you have a definite finitude and clear edges, although you are perhaps not always aware of those edges. There is, in other words, a distinction between you and the world you live in, as well as others you live with. You relate to the world as a unique presence. This is not something that mimetic theory is actually trying to undermine. This means that you are really you and I am really me. We are both subjects, separate and carrying around something like a unique essence. Mimetic theory can work with the claim that desire is borrowed or duplicated precisely because there is a separateness between subjects. To put it more bluntly, I can only copy your desires because you are not me and you can, if you like, copy my desires only because I am not you. However, our subjectivity as distinct subjects is not nearly as bounded as we may tend to think it is. 
Within each of us, there are a number of themes and variations, and even, as is confirmed by modern psychology, a whole array of personalities. Each subject contains multiple selves and possible selves. None of us relates to the world in a strictly uniform way. A single human being takes on any number of roles and depends greatly on what I like to call the mimetic field, which is the field of mediated desires within which we are operating. For instance, I perform a number of roles. I am a husband, a father, a son, a friend, an academic, a teacher, and so on. You might call each of these roles a self. These aren't exactly personalities, but they are certainly ways of operating in the world. And given that each self is mimetic, you could say that each self or way of operating in the world is a self of desire. Of course, I'm acutely aware that what shapes these roles is the mimetic field itself. I am a father, for instance, in connection to the desire of the other. The other here naturally is not a single human being, but rather an entire collection of expectations and values and the like, generated in my relationships with my wife, kid, family, society, and so on. And this particular fatherly self of desire is quite different from the self of desire that allows me to function as an academic. There are overlaps, of course, I would hope there are, and there is a kind of unity in my subjectivity, and I'm not as a father a completely different human being or subject from when I adopt the roles of academic or husband. If I were, I would no doubt experience a fair degree of inner chaos, distress, anxiety, and fragmentation. I would have no way to access who I am apart from the idea that there is a unity even within this diversity of selves. Still, the idea that desire is mimetic highlights that my nature as a subject allows for the possibility of several selves of desire, each of which could be constituted as I filter, translate, and transpose the desire of the other. All of this is crucial to understand for my proposal of an Enneagram of mimetic desire. Provisionally speaking, it's the idea that each Enneatype is going to relate in a unique way to others, specifically with regard to the way that selves of desire are filtered and formed. The idea of a filter actually makes for a really useful metaphor, so I think it'll be helpful to pause for a moment to reflect on its usefulness. We are all uniquely formed in our material specificity, our psychological composition, and our spiritual predilections and preferences. This means that when we encounter the desire of the other, we will be naturally predisposed to either accept it or reject it. Moreover, the acceptance or rejection of a desire will be in keeping with the form of our nature as subjects. If the desire of the other is taken on rather than rejected, it will manifest in us keeping with our own unique being. We do not cease to be ourselves when we copy the desires of others, but rather, through mimetic desire, the relation of the self to the other is transformed. We're basically changed by who we hang out with, who we spend time with. And this is why the psychoanalyst Ugulion, a friend and colleague of Girard's, whose work deeply informs the mimetic psychology that I'm discussing in this series, he refers to interdividual psychology. 
The issue here is not primarily what Jung calls individual psychology, although psychologies of various kinds that focus primarily on the internal workings of the subject's mind can be and are profoundly useful. Rather, what we have in mimetic theory is a psychology of a relation to the other that is taken up by the subject. This relation creates specific selves of desire. Part of the aim of an individual psychology, as informed by the Enneagram, will be to, to really understand how selves of desire can either be embraced or renounced, or welcomed or scapegoated. There are, as this would suggest, healthy selves of desire and unhealthy ones, as well as ways that seemingly healthy selves of desire may prove to be less than ideal. This is actually part of what an Enneagram of mimetic desire can reveal, how our borrowed desires work and don't work in our favor. By combining mimetic theory with the language of the Enneagram, we arrive at a way of examining good and bad ways of desiring, as well as hopefully gaining a clearer picture of how desire leads us into and out of conflict with others. My own focus here is using the Enneagram as a way to interrogate how each of us can take responsibility in relationships. One of the more brilliant observations of Gerard and Ugulian around mimetic psychology is the idea that the mimetic is the true unconscious. In the previous episode, I spoke about how we scapegoat certain parts of ourselves, which is to say that we repress and disavow certain aspects of ourselves. And the result of this is not that we discard those parts of ourselves, but that they move into our unconscious. They are still there, but no longer easily accessible to us. And one of the things that we tend to scapegoat and or disavow is the fact that our desires are borrowed. I'm going to talk a little bit more about how this actually happens in a later episode. For now, the gist is that when we take on the desires of others, more often than not, we forget, in a manner of speaking, that we have taken on their desires. We assume that the desire is ours, our very own, our precious. I'm borrowing, obviously, from <laughs> Tolkien's Gollum. Effectively, we believe the romantic lie and deny novelistic truth when it comes to ourselves. This has, as we will see, both positive and negative consequences. On the positive front, shared desires bind us together. On the negative front, shared desires create conflict. If you are a sports fan watching a game, your shared desire with your fellow fans of your team is what unifies you. On the negative side, though, shared desires bring about conflict. So, in that same sports arena, the desire that you, your team, and your fellow fans have for winning the game is the very same desire that the other team and its supporters have. That shared desire makes you want the other team to basically die a miserable death on the field, so to speak. The insight here, which is really significant, I feel, is that conflict does not stem from what is different, but from that primary point of unity that we know as mimetic desire. There is obviously going to be a lot more to say about mimetic theory, but what I've been talking about so far should be a decent enough overview for the moment. Other details are going to emerge as we go along. But now, I think let's have a quick look at the Enneagram itself. One of the strangest phenomena in Enneagram writing is the attempt made by various people to root the Enneagram in ancient history. 
As far as I can tell, the primary reason for this appeal to history is that it suggests a kind of authority that some people find reassuring. I certainly appreciate history a great deal, but I'm also really skeptical of what seems to be, in fact, a kind of genetic fallacy. It's a fallacy not because the Enneagram has no history, but because the kind of history that is appealed to seems to me to be rather dubious. Its origin isn't really known. So, emphasizing its origin or even its possible origin as a source of legitimacy is, as far as I can tell, rather self-defeating. Although we cannot be absolutely certain, all indications are that um, the Enneagram does draw from the great wisdom traditions, which are very ancient, and so it is familiar with and cognizant of ancient ways of seeing. Still, the Enneagram is a very recent invention. The earliest known teacher of the Enneagram was a controversial figure named George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, uh, whom some regarded as a genius and others think of as a charlatan. Debates about him still go on today. But Gurdjieff never claimed to be the Enneagram's originator, and in any case, his Enneagram wasn't the one we know today, although there are some overlaps with his thinking about it. As far as we know, the Enneagram of Personality, as a personality typology, was developed first by Oscar Icazo and then Claudio Naranjo, and then a whole host of others. It started as a part of an oral tradition and then morphed into something more widespread through books, online videos, online chat forums and tweets, and even podcasts like this one. And it seems that even in its earliest iterations, and despite disputes between different schools that teach the Enneagram, the Enneagram's focus has remained on pointing out the nine ego fixations that shape the psyche of each individual subject. The intention has been to expose hidden motivations and therefore allow for a much-needed discernment in service of personal and spiritual growth. This makes it somewhat different from other personality typologies which focus on general cognitive structures or modes of operating in the world like the the big five or the MBTI personality typologies. As far as the fixations go, Enneotype 1s fixate on resentment, 2s on flattery, 3s on vanity, 4s on melancholy, 5s on stinginess, 6s on cowardice, 7s on ego planning, 8s on revenge, and nines on indolence. Alternatively, these fixations are named as vices, such that the vice of ones is anger, the vice of twos is pride, the vice of threes is deceit, the vice of fours is envy, the vice of fives is avarice, the vice of sixes is fear, the vice of sevens is gluttony, the vice of eights is lust, and the vice of nines is sloth. Each of these vices gets a slightly different definition in Enneagram teaching, which is something that we should keep in mind. The brilliance of the Enneagram, and the source of a great deal of internal disquiet for the subjects who first encounter it, is in the fact that it notes how, without us taking full cognizance of the underlying impetus, these vices tend to manifest as virtues in us, albeit false virtues. Type 1s, for instance, are obsessed with rightness and perfection because of a fixation on resentment and anger. This means that what might seem on the surface to be a virtue for ones, namely their desire and tendency to achieve their ideal, 
is in fact a parasite that feeds on a vice. They do the right thing in a way, but also kind of for the wrong reasons. The same goes for the other types, obviously. In general, even the best actions of so-called gut types, that's enneotypes 8s, 9s, and 1s, are rooted in anger. Even the best actions of so-called head types, 5s, 6s, and 7s, are rooted in fear. And even the best actions of heart types, 2s, 3s, and 4s, are rooted in shame and anxiety. And so to borrow a theological idea that has been rather dangerously caricatured, namely the idea of original sin, we find that our goodness is easily contaminated. Our goodness is in a way not all that good, or not always that good. Our motivations are often the furthest thing from pure. You could also say that our motivations are often the furthest thing from known. Why do we do anything anyway? Sometimes we actually don't have any idea why we do what we do. Take the following as an example. I know people who are fond of talking, even when they're not really saying anything relevant or meaningful, even when what they're saying is very unhelpful. And the reason seems to be that they just can't help talking. As an introvert um, who tries to be quite deliberate in my speech, this is often quite perplexing to me. The question why are you telling me this, might come up, but the answer isn't easily forthcoming. Sometimes a rationalization will be offered, but the rationalization rings false, because the original impulse was never rational in the first place. What we end up with is often a post-rationalization, and yes, it accounts for something and appears to describe something that looks like the reason for why a thing was said or done, but it is a mask. The underlying motivation is far more difficult, maybe even impossible, to locate. So this is what the Enneagram does particularly well. It points at the mask. It says, in a way, the obvious, and then presents us with a proposition. The reason you tend to do this or that thing is at least to a large extent owed to this or that ego fixation. Your motivation, as pure as you may have thought it was, seems to have been tainted by something else, something that you really don't want to know about, but which you really ought to know about. This does make the, the Enneagram a little bit negative to begin with, but thankfully the Enneagram doesn't stop there. It also points out the path that we need to take to grow past that particular ego fixation. The path is not always a very easy one to follow, and it has to do a great deal with self-renunciation. Uh, in essence, the self of desire needs to be renounced. I've spoken about how the self is something constituted by desire. This is not the subject with the self we are talking about. There is obviously more to you than this self of desire. Well, let's take each enneotype as having been constituted by desire, or by a mimetic field of desires filtered through the unique being of the human subject. If that self of desire, that specific enneotype, is a bothersome, sin-defending self of desire, then it needs to be renounced and transcended. This is part of what it'll mean to transcend false virtue and then replace it with real virtue if we follow enneagram theory. As what I've just said suggests, mimetic desire plays a role in our identity formation, and so an enneagram of mimetic desire could certainly prove helpful for uprooting our various often unconscious 
commitments to our masks. With this in mind, I think it's very useful to frame each Enya type via their driving desire, which by now you will have noticed is a mimetic desire, keeping in our thoughts the idea that the desires of each type are driven by a particular sin or passion, we end up with a very brief overview of nine selves of desire. To an extent, the desires that drive us tend to be substitutes for attaining deeper needs. So it's helpful to distinguish between need and desire. A simple example is pretty helpful. I, I need food, but I might desire chocolate. Simply put, need is essential while desire might include an aspect of the essential while excluding important aspects of that essential. With this in mind, we might actually figure out what the nine types of desire are trying to tap into, as well as the deeper need that the desire is acting as a substitute for. So type ones desire perfection, but this actually substitutes the need to be attuned to goodness. Type twos desire to be needed. Well, this substitutes the need to be attuned to love. Type threes desire to impress, and that substitutes the real need to be attuned to truth. Type fours desire to be unique, and that substitutes the need to be attuned to real authenticity. Type fives desire knowledge and competence, and that substitutes the need to be attuned to real wisdom. Type sixes desire to feel secure, and that substitutes a need to be attuned to faith. Type sevens desire to avoid pain, well that substitutes a need to be attuned to joy. Type 8s desire control. Well, that's a substitute for being attuned to justice. And then type 9s desire to be at peace. And that substitutes a need to be attuned to wholeness. And what is very interesting is that each of these desires is accompanied by a particular fear. So each type has a fear that, that supports the, the kind of ego fixation that is running the show. So type 1s fear being corrupt and imperfect. Type 2s fear being unloved. Type 3s fear having no inherent value. Type 4s fear having no significance and no identity. Type 5s fear being incompetent, helpless and incapable. Type 6s fear being without support or guidance. Type 7s fear being without options and therefore being trapped. Type 8s fear being controlled and harmed, and type 9s fear being separated, lost, and fragmented. I have also pointed out that the mimetic is unconscious, which means that while our ego selves of desire, that's that part of us that we're more aware of, would be driven by the various desires which are supported by the various fears, unconsciously we are actually composed of a whole set of other desires and fears. This is indicated at the so-called point of integration of the Enneagram. If you have a look at the Enneagram diagram, there is each number has a point of integration and a point of disintegration. Well, the unconscious desire that drives us is actually located at our point of integration. And this is what the Enneagram of Desire actually helps us to see much more clearly. Namely, that every type, while operating in accordance with one mode of desire, is always in some ways a rival of a totally different mode of desire and even a different need. So, at the unconscious level, each type desires in the following way. Type 1s repress a desire for pleasure. Type 2s 
repress a desire for uniqueness. Type 3s repress a desire for security. Type 4s repress a desire for perfection. Type 5s repress a desire for control. And type 6s repress the desire for peace. Then type 7s repress the desire for knowledge and competence. Type 8s the desire to be loved. And type 9s the desire to impress. With all of this in mind, we can begin to articulate, if only provisionally, what the Enneagram of mimetic desire is about. The Enneagram of personality being a language looks at particular ways that people have adopted for coping with existence, for coping with the world. These ways of coping, while seemingly functional in some ways, are in fact dysfunctional in others. They tend to only offer a partial solution because they misunderstand the problem. The problem, generally speaking, seems to be seems to be the problem of dealing with the material and social conditions of life, but the real problem is this, which is a loss of connection with the ground of being, namely God. What we form as a way of coping with the world becomes, in fact, one of the primary hindrances when it comes to deepening our connection with that which is transcendently real. This is not to say that personality is evil in itself, in fact, it's a wonderful thing. In Christian theology, God desires personality and in fact shapes the world in praise of personality. Things in themselves are wonderful in their distinctness and uniqueness. It's safe to say that we love things precisely because they are themselves, which means that personality as such is not a problem. And it is, I think, misguided to presume that the purpose of existence is a detached, zen-like state of pure impersonality, which to me is like supporting an unhealthy Enneotype 9-ishness or an unhealthy and particularly dry 5-ishness. That would merely be, to my mind, humanly speaking, the presumption that one kind of personality is better than others. What is a problem, then, is the fact that we all too easily presume to be absolute, that which is really relative. It's a spiritual nuisance to presume totality when there is only partiality. In this respect, personality might encourage us, in a way, to devour the starter and then leave without having us realize that the main course and the dessert are due to follow. What Thomas Merton refers to as the true self is not a Gnostic denial or negation of the so-called false self, the true self is not disembodied. Rather, it's what transcends and includes the so-called false self. The Enneagram of mimetic desire focuses then on naming the false self in terms of its desires and then pointing out where it has gotten off track or stuck or in what ways it is prone to getting stuck. It explores the homeland territory and then reminds its inhabitants that there are other lands that are yet to be explored. And one of the chief functions of the Enneagram of mimetic desire would be to examine how our desires enmesh us in a world in both good and bad ways. If we understand our desires, both conscious and unconscious, we will be better able to understand how we actually relate to people as well as how we relate to ourselves. We will see our good relationships more clearly as well, hopefully, um, and find ways to at the very least understand and maybe even remedy those relationships that are not working, especially where conflict tends to escalate too easily. I hope that sounds good to you. I know this has been, in a way, a bit of a long introduction um, 
to this Enneagram of Mimetic Desire. I've split it over two episodes. But with all of this in mind, we can actually dive into the details now. So feel free to join me in the next episode as I look at Enneatypes 1 and 4 and the principle of metaphysical desire, and then how that might apply to other types as well. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening into this episode. Take care of yourselves. Bye.